Well, let me begin first by thanking all of you for taking the time out of your evening to join me and my guest, Congressman Tim Ryan, this evening. It's very much appreciated. Uh, we'll be on for an hour having a conversation. Tim and I will talk for a while. If you have questions, uh, please submit them into the comments section. We'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Um, about halfway through, we'll start. But uh, to begin with, it's a real pleasure to uh, introduce my friend, Congressman Tim Ryan, recently retired from Congress after 10 terms from the 13th District of Ohio, unindicted, no convictions <laughs> at the end of his 20 years of service. Welcome, Tim Ryan, to the warning. Thanks for being here. Uh, great to be on, Steve. Thanks so much. So talk to us a little bit about retirement after 20 years in, in Congress. What are you, what are you doing? Uh, it's, it's glorious. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, to be out of the, out of the insanity, you know, it didn't take long to really kind of catch my breath. And I started uh, coaching uh, Brady, uh, who, you know, my eight-year-old, uh, I was assistant to the assistant to the assistant of his basketball team, eight-year-old, and uh, having a ball with that. I it was I was about three weeks after I uh, lost the election for Senate. Steve, you, you, I'm, I'm in the middle of an eight-year-old basketball game, and I'm sitting next to the head coach, and the referee made a bunch of really bad calls because the kids are just banging into each other, and the coach gets up and he's screaming at the referee, and he's on the court. The athletic director comes over and yells at him, and I'm just sitting there thinking three weeks before this, I was having, having a debate about national issues, <laughs> war and peace. And that's in the, one of the most important Senate races. I thought, boy, my life has changed a lot in three weeks, <laughs> uh, but I'm having a ball getting to hang out with my wife and, uh, and more time with the kids and, and working on some, some cool issues that we could, we could talk about, but I'm, I'm having a lot of fun and, and enjoying this next phase of my life. So 20 years in the Congress, Tim, uh, your service, I, I think, was exemplary on a serious note for those 20 years. You made a big impact in your, your community. But having been away from it now for only a few months, you know, when you look back on those 20 years, when you, when you look back at, at what's going on, does the distance of a couple of months give you any, any perspective, not, not having been back there now for the first time? And, in, in 20 years. It's a long time. Yeah, no, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you, you get to understand why people think it's so messed up. You know, you just you know, like, I, I don't watch a lot of it. I try to follow it a little bit on my more on my newsfeed and stuff like that. So I'm not like watching the videos and stuff, but you begin to see like, it's just, it's insanity. Um, and you begin to see, you know, what happened today, obviously, was was crazy. And the fact that, you know, this guy who just got indicted, 34 counts, is probably this helped him in his in his primary election, you know, and I was sitting here just I turned it on. I said, I got to at least look at this. I'm going on with Steve tonight. So I, I watched it. And I'm like, this is nuts because everything that was happening was helping him. Um, and that looks that looks bizarre from the inside, but from the outside, it, you begin to see a lot of the stuff that you write about, like that, that this is really, it's like a, 
a potential inflection point in the history of the country as to what direction we're going to go in. And that's that's kind of frightening. Why do you think it's helping him? And I and I agree with you that that within the Republican primary, it's definitely it's definitely going to help him. But but why? It's he's he's managed to create some say a cult or whatever, but he's managed to create uh, an emotional bond, you know, an ego that is beyond his. It's it's everyone's ego is in the mix now. All of the thirty five percent of the Republican uh, primary voters, and I just this was like you know the Stormy Daniels thing, and I I've, I've got a like a super Trumper guy who I don't really even know, but he somehow got my phone number. So I kept texting with him because I just wanted a beat on like the in, in, inside of this kind of movement. And he texted to me today, um, God, family, America, Trump. And so I said, you know, excuse me, but like banging a stripper while your wife's home <laughs> pregnant and paying her off with hush money. I have a question. Is that the God part or the family part? I'm asking for a friend. And it's just like, it didn't matter to him. Like none of this matters to him. He is going down with the ship. And I think that's why this will energize uh, his base. He will play the victim card and he will probably end up being the nominee. Because that guy can't be wrong or that guy's really mad. And if he's really mad, what's he mad at? He's mad at the fact that um, the the Democrats are not American. He goes to the border. We haven't done anything about the border. He's socialism, you know, all of that. And so whatever Trump has done pales in comparison to what he perceives to be the, the socialist threat to the American way of life. And does he articulate what the socialist threat is? What, no, what really. is the piece of socialism, right? That's gonna that's gonna unravel it all. I don't don't think he gets that far down. You know, I think it's very much he is he thinks it's socialism. He feels the threat. He's in fight or flight mode. His amygdala is all cranked up, and he's now associated Trump with protecting him from that that threat. And I think a lot of it too is a sense of belonging. I think one of the things, and I know you and I have talked about this, like the sense of community in the country, his, his fractured and frayed um, institutions, churches, you know, uh, other institutions, Kiwanis, Rotary Club. I mean, you look at them all. I've, I've followed this my 20 years in Congress. So I, I, when I first started, you know, you go to a Kiwanis meeting, you go to a Rotary Club meeting, it'd be 80, 90, 100 people there for a lunch. You know, not so much now. Churches are empty now. Um, and so he's, he feels a part of something and, and that's the something that's missing in the country. And so when, when there's no other option, really he gravitates towards, you know, something that's as crazy as the, the Trump movement. And so what's the antidote to that? <sighs> um, it, it will take time, but a, a caring and concern um you know for people i i don't think it's like i'm not sure you're going to get that guy um but it's you, you want to make sure the people in the middle know that and i speak on behalf of democrats here in, in a way that 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 you care about them and i think 
you've seen this in the kind of the tactics of a lot of Democrats. They don't go to rural areas. They don't go to small towns. And, and Trump does really well in these areas. And those areas have been ignored. Factory towns like Youngstown, the one I've, I've grown up in and represented, you know, they, they did not, they, they felt like Democrats were taking advantage of them. I think when the crisis happened in 20, uh, the uh, subprime mortgage, um, and no, Democrats were in charge, nobody went to prison, right? Now, how did the entire economy collapse and not one rich banker did anything wrong? and Democrats swept it under the rug. I think that was the, on top of NAFTA and some of the globalist uh, stuff that happened under a, another Democratic president, and then no real response to those economic issues. I think, I think a lot of people in these factory towns, small town America started to say, I used to be a Democrat, but they don't care about me anymore. That was the Tea Party. They were without a home and kept kind of voting Democrat for Obama and then 14 and then 16 came along and it was the spouse of the person who passed NAFTA. It was the person who uh, President Obama was campaigning for. And I think it just pushed those Democrats who felt ignored and in a lot of ways they were uh, into the Trump world. And then that just seared in because he spoke so directly to them about the grievance, the pain of the 30 or 40 year uh, economic, just kind of, you know, down, the economic decline and unraveling. And now was that. And a lot of people became really identified with him. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm with Trump. And yeah. that's kind of where we're hanging on now. And do, and do you think your average Democrat in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. who's working as a staffer at the Democratic National Committee, the Congressional Committee, understands the economic pain uh, in the parts of the country you're referring to, in the Youngstown, Ohio's of America? What don't they get that they need to understand? Uh, there, there's, there, you just got to come and see it. Um, you know, campaigning all around Ohio, representing a working class district for 20 years, there, there's no explaining it to something. You know, people are hurting, people are in pain. Like, okay, what's the data say? What's the polling say about how these people feel about, you know, X, Y, or Z? I mean, I got, I got this picture up behind me of Bobby Kennedy with his arm on a dirty coal miner. I mean, that's it. You got to go. You got to show up. And so those, those young, bright, staffers, um, you know, have a lot of strengths, a lot of attributes, but until the, the DNA of the Democratic Party, the, the rank and file workers, campaign managers and all that, see what we see here every day in Ohio, I think the party's going to continue to to miss it. I do think Biden gets it way more than most people, but he has been pulled this way and that way. But I think in his bones, he, he understands that growing up in, in Scranton. Uh, but the rest, many, many people in the party it just just still don't don't get it. Well, speaking of Bobby Kennedy, we're upon the 55th anniversary of the two of the greatest speeches in American history. And, and by that, I mean up there uh, with the with the Gettysburg Address. And that is Martin Luther King's final speech. Uh, which is the I have been to the mountaintop speech that mm -hmm. he gives to the sanitation workers on strike in Memphis. And then 
the announcement of his assassination by Bobby Kennedy in Indianapolis to a crowd of mostly uh, working class blacks from the back of a pickup truck. Uh, Indianapolis, one of the few cities, major cities in the country where there's no violence, where there's no riots, everybody goes home and this speech is transcendent. It's one of the great speeches in American history and it's certainly the greatest extemporaneous speech and it's fundamentally about love. And it's one of the rare times where Bobby Kennedy talks about the murder of his brother by a white man uh, as he's talking to this black crowd. And Bobby Kennedy talks uh, to them about the Greek poet Aeschylus. Uh, and I imagine we've talked about this, what the reaction would be of the overwhelming majority of Democratic Party pollsters today. <laughs> you know, if you if you if you if you were to ask them, you know, should the presidential candidate uh, quote a Greek poet Aeschylus to the poor black people <laughs> at a moment at a moment of crisis? And I, I suggest they would they would they would advise not. Um, but what what is the relevance to Bobby Kennedy um, to 2023 to 2024? Uh, I think he has a lot of relevance. How do, how do you see him um, and his <laughs> message as applying uh, today? Yeah, it was um, in the art of war. Um, there's uh, a concept of hard and soft, right? You think you either got to be all hard or all soft. And I think what the Kennedys got, both Bobby and Jack, was that 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 really important balance of hard and soft. And so Bobby Kennedy could be both tough on crime and also wanting to figure out how you bring economic development uh, to a black neighborhood in New York when he was a Senator. And I think that being able to thread that needle is really a unique gift. I think that, that he had um, and obviously president Kennedy had as well. But that that allowed him to transcend the right left divide in so many ways. So he could be anti-war, uh, but also a tough guy um, and win an Indiana primary, you know, and, and pick up in a rural Indiana votes. He could be as comfortable uh, with coal miners and steel workers, you know, as he could you know, talking uh, to business folks. So I think he was able really to embrace both the hard and the soft and know when each of those needed to be applied to the body politic, to his messaging. And then I think that the real magic comes from the aspiration and the challenge of we can be better than this. And don't you think uh, oh, do we have to settle for this? And really questioning the status quo of the broken system really on both sides, because as we know, you know, we're, we're, you're coming off of, uh, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson, who com completely screwed it up with Vietnam, had the great society rolling and a lot of good things were happening, but really messed that up. So he was taking on in some ways the entire system with this aspirational message of we can do better. And I just think you put all that together and that's why guys like me have posters of guys like him in my office. Well, today's a good day to talk about doing better. Um, 
I watched a little bit uh, of the uh, what I, what I what I think about as a reality show uh, episode, um, the you know the trial year, um, former president of the United States, and I um, more than anything else, I don't think I've ever seen a president look smaller than I saw one look today sitting in a Manhattan courtroom. I guess which is my which is my first in, impression of what I saw. What's yours? I was surprised at the fact that him sitting there did not surprise me. Like it was like you you you, you follow what he's done his whole life, and of course it was going to end up like this. Like of course he was going to be in a courtroom where all of his BS that he could do outside of the, the political system and his business dealings over the course of his life, like where no one was really, really paying attention. But once you get into the, you know, you're president of the United States, you're in a campaign and all of the, all of the kind of accounting that has to happen in those things. And then people really start looking, you're screwed. A guy like him is absolutely screwed. Like he's great when nobody's looking and he can, you know, be on home alone and do the apprentice and smoke and mirrors and build a roller skate or ice skating rink in Central Park. Fine. Right. No one cares what he's doing off stream. But now, like I just I was surprised. I'm like, yeah, that that looks about right. You know, that's how that's that's how this ends. And. One of the great tragedies of this whole era, I think, is, you know, we've talked about this, is that your average 20-year-old, right, looks at looks at this guy and says, well, that's what the president of the United States is like. Um, this, is, this is what a president is. And so this degradation to the office, which is something that we have to talk about as a country, but when you, when you think about where we are and where we need to get to, and where we where we need to go, what what does somebody need to step forward in your estimation and say to this country to capture their attention and to start us stepping off in a in a new direction? And do, do you see anything that anybody has said in either party over the last couple of months that that inspires you to believe uh, that we're that we're upon that? I don't. I, I, I don't hear anybody. I, I think the message is kind of what we were talking about with with a Bobby Kennedy, like the, the leader's job is to have your eye on the prize. And that prize is those those American ideals, uh, freedom, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, um, leading the world, innovation, uh, you know, bringing everybody along like that. Those those are the kind of things of the, the, the we can do better. I, I don't hear. I mean, any of that from from really anybody. And in, in, in contrast to not in contrast to, but in response to the challenges are so great. I mean, it could be it could be climate. I mean, what we're seeing now is like the increase in, in climate activity. But at the same time, we're seeing people backing off of their climate goals. Like we're not solving this problem. Like we're seeing increased interest rates. We're seeing a becoming recession. And yet 
you know, in, in people still trapped in, in the large swaths of the country, trapped in a broken uh, economic system, deaths of despair are up, suicides, mental health issues, like all of these indicators of like the symptoms of a diseased body politic are all around us. And, and who's, who's leading us towards, you know, the renewal and reconciliation we talked about, but the healing that we, that we need. And I think talking about that, that healing and that there's a responsibility for each citizen, again, the challenge of each of us as citizens. And nobody wants to do that anymore. Like nobody wants to say, no, you got to get off your ass and you got to help. Like this is not going to fix itself. And, and that leads to civics education and national service and all of these things, which I think ought to be the essential building blocks to the next phase of America, to the America 2.0 that, that I think a lot of people are longing for. And I think what the politicians now are missing um, is that the American people are freaking dying for somebody to say, somebody to lead and say, come on, let's go, we could do this. I think just beneath all the toxicity of the of the political discourse, people are ready to be activated. And um, and I'm not hearing on either side, quite frankly. Now, certainly, certainly today in New York, you had you had protesters out there. It's New York City. You were going to see that. But but so far as I can tell, uh, there was no mass protest. Certainly not out across the country. Uh, the cities aren't lit up by torchlight parades tonight of Americans turning out justice justice for Trump. What I what I saw was wall to wall coverage, uh, a lot of camera time on his plane on the runway, uh, the 2023 version of the white Bronco. I um, I saw a lot of uh, a lot of uh, shots of the hallway of the 15th floor. The criminal courts building in the in the city of Manhattan, and and saw what looked like most of America's reporters uh, all congregated there. But but the action, such as it such as it was, you know the the revolution, the violence that he was calling for, didn't seem to materialize to me. And I just wonder if we're not at the end of this, um, where as you said, people are just worn out, exhausted by it. And ready to turn the show off. And what we're seeing are the vestiges of this really giant economy, this Trump industrial complex, uh, which is really hard to turn off. If you if you're a television network, if you're a uh, right wing newsletter, if you're a if you're a politician, it's become like um, the machines in the Terminator movie, self-sustaining. What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's. It's uh, catnip. I mean, catnip's uh, light, putting it lightly, it's crack. You know, it's a, it's a very addictive drug uh, for these networks and they go right at it and they have a limited group. I'm interested to see how much money he raised today. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to hear that number um, and, and, and see how that plays out, whether his base starts chipping in and saying, yeah, we're taking this, you know, to, to, the, to the death. Um, and but I do think the media is missing out, like most people are turning off of this stuff because it's just it's exhausting. And like, honest to God, I was like sitting in my desk, I had zooms and all this stuff all day. And I got a TV up there. I turned it on. I watched it for 15 minutes. And you know what I put on? Creed. 
they had they were playing a rerun of the Creed movie. I said, I'm gonna watch Creed. I'm not watching this anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's just why would I say what am I gonna do that? I got the facts, I got what I needed to, to be able to educate myself on what was going on, but I didn't need to sit there and listen to the hysteria. Like it's and that's that's part of the problem is that you know, if you're interested, you want to be active and involved you know, you're getting fed a bunch of poison. So I'm anxious to see how he does with money, fundraising, and see where it goes. But I think, you know, that's why you're, I think the warning is doing well. A lot of these other uh, media outlets are starting to do better and better that are kind of neutral, straight observing the news. I think people are more interested in that than getting the, like, get your amygdala cranked up and put you in the fight or flight mode and then keep your eyeballs on the TV. I think that level of exhaustion is starting to kick in, but we will find out. This is gonna be a stress test for, for that broken uh, uh, media outlet system that we have. Some, some years ago, I had breakfast with an aspiring presidential candidate, John Hickenlooper, who's now in the US Senate from Colorado. We were at breakfast, Hickenlooper asked me, he said, are there any books that you would recommend you know, before I get ready to write, write, you know, run for president. And I, I joked around with them and I said, catch up on your Marcus Aurelius, uh, catch up on your stoicism. You'll need it in a presidential campaign. I know that stoic philosophy is important to you, something that you study. Meditation is something that's important to you, something that you think has real application in recovery of people for trauma in our schools. Why don't you talk a, a, a little bit about that and how some of those principles can be applied to, to our brokenness in government by, by way of reform and repair? Yeah, I, I, each of us contribute um, as citizens to the general tone and tenor of the body politic, right? We're all, we're all you know, molecules and atoms of the body politic. And so I just, is, and personally, um, you know, with, with the level of stress, the information coming at us, um, the distraction, the, the uh, what we're just talking about with the media, like the intention of the, the media industrial complex is to activate your fear centers in your brain to kick you in the fight or flight mode and for you to watch in a very alert, high alert way, the commercials that are paying the networks, right? So all of this um, is it, not just the media, but all of what's going on in society is causing a great deal of, of disease, which leads to dis, uh, disease that leads to disease. Um, and so I've just kind of gravitated over the last probably 20, years or so, 25 years, really my whole life, um, to practices and philosophies that can help try to really keep you centered and in the present moment. And I found mindfulness meditation and other, I wrote a book on it called Healing America, which you can get at amazon.com. Uh, it makes, makes for a great gift, but it's about, <laughs> you know, your mind can be, your mind can be in three places. Uh, it could be in the past, it could be in the future, or it can be in the present. And what we have forgotten uh, or maybe never learned is that you can literally train your mind to be in the present moment. And the past causes a great deal of anxiety. The future, anticipating what's to come, can cause a great deal of anxiety. And so really practicing where you sit, you follow your breath, 
you're really disciplining your mind. And so that's to be in the present moment. That's kind of comes out of uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, that, that space. Um, but every religion has some kind of contemplative practice. And then I kind of stumbled onto the Stoics. I love Ryan Holiday. I've read all his books. Ego is the enemy. Obstacle is the way. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's phenomenal stuff. He, he's got a great uh, social media presence. Uh, the Daily Dad is the new one I'm, I'm, I'm following on Twitter, Daily uh, Stoics with all these great quotes, but it's all kind of the same thing, but they don't really talk about meditation. They talk about being in the present moment. They would talk about, you know, making every day count. Um, they, they, they have deep ethics and values on the only thing important is doing the right thing, no matter what situation you're in. The most important thing is doing it the right way. And so meditations by Marcus Aurelius, works of Seneca and others um, have deep roots in America. I, I, think, I think Ryan said this in one of his pieces where Thomas Jefferson had Seneca, a great stoic, by his bed when he died. Uh, George Washington literally did a play, I don't know if it was a Seneca play or what, um, for his troops right before Valley Forge. So this is deeply ingrained into the American culture, the American spirit. And I just think, you know, you look at, you look at uh, Henry David Thoreau, you look at the transcendentalists, like this, there's a strand of this in America that we got to tap back into because this thing is spinning, man, it's going. And I think we've got to tap into this stuff to bring it back. And, and so, so let's talk about that through the prism of the democratic Democratic Party in this moment. There was a uh, right-wing provocateur commentator who got called out on one of the news shows in the last week. They were asked, "Well, what is woke?" Right, and of course they they couldn't they couldn't answer it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you that question: Is what is woke? But in the context of what is it that people hate so much? that they're turning and open to this authoritarian shtick that you're seeing come out to protect them in their eyes from this woke ideology, whatever it may or may not be, uh, which is never entirely clear. And, and I ask this because it goes to the very heart of the, of the political problem in the country which is one of the two political parties has turned away from democracy. If we had 15 major political parties in the country and one of them took a flyer on democracy, it's not a huge issue. But, but when one out of two of them uh, <laughs> takes a flyer on it, it's, a, it's an enormous problem. Then, then the other problem is, is the pro-democracy party is barely winning against the autocratic party, which, which, which should trigger some self-reflection, which is we're, we're losing to these people, uh, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, because of why. And so, so my question for you is to talk a little bit about the why, but, but also what needs to be said that's new and fresh to Americans that have lost total touch with the party of John Kennedy, of Harry Truman, of Franklin Roosevelt? 
I think the underlying thing is that the most of the people don't believe that the Democrats care about them. And why? And, well, going back to, you know, a few minutes ago, we talked about what happened with NAFTA, what happened with um, the subprime mortgage. I mean, I'm not, I'm, you can't understate this, Steve. Like we had factories where I'm from close up and move over the border in Mexico. We had workers that had to go down there and train the Mexican workers that were eventually going to take their jobs. You know, we saw the steel industry collapse. We saw, you know, what happened in, in many aspects of the auto industry and the suppliers to the auto industry. And in, 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 in some of it was automation too. But the reality is that got pinned on the Democrats because it was the Democrats who passed NAFTA. Then the subprime mortgage and everything collapses. And it was the Democrats who swept it under the rug. And so the average person is sitting there watching this saying, these people don't care about me. They care more about themselves. Now, right, wrong, indifferent. I'm just telling you what the average person, why Trump won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Michigan in 2016. That is why they feel like we don't give a shit about them. And, and so then there was the whole idea of the emerging Democratic majority, right? And it was going to be a multicultural uh, majority. And, and so then it, the, sh the shift became on how are we going to help minority groups, which I'm all for a thousand percent. Look at my voting record. I'm in a thousand percent, right? I voted for all of these bills, criminal justice reform, voting reform. I don't think it's an issue of policy. I think it's an issue of communication. And the fact that these rural areas, these working class areas that do have white people in them, we don't show up in. And so, you know, it's not just working class because I've, I've gotten into these arguments as I've campaigned over the, over the years with people. So uh, Tim Ryan's the white working class guy. And I keep saying, I'm the working class guy, white, black, brown, gay, straight, you're working, I'm for you. But what we've seen with Trump, and this is nuts, and this is what I tell Democrats, you've got to ask yourself this question. How does Trump do better with black voters in 2020 than he did in 2016? How does he do better with Latino voters in 2020 than he did in 2016? It's the working, it's that it's it's the fact that working people don't see us as for them. And that is the underlying problem. So the woke stuff is kind of like secondary, like, yeah, you're for the woke stuff. What's that really mean? It means you're not for me, right? Even the, the black voters are saying you're for all the woke stuff, you're not for me, right? If you you gotta wrap your arms around coal miners, I'm gonna have a whole lot of them left, but those working class people that that think that the Democratic Party finds them repugnant. And, and they think that the Democrats don't care about them. And then the Democrats don't show up and confirm all of their greatest suspicions. That's the problem. And Biden was able to check that a little bit uh, because of his own personal story and background. But for most Democrats, it becomes very, very difficult. So how, how worried are you when you think about this 2024 election? Do you think Donald Trump could be the Republican nominee again? 
I think he'll be, yeah. I mean, honestly, just my instinct today watching was he's going to be the nominee. They're going to rally around him. There's not, you know, nobody has the guy. Chris Christie can talk all he wants, um, but he's not going to be able to unite uh, the anti-Trump faction because, as you wrote, you know, a few days ago, he's got no spine. Like, nobody believes he's really anti-Trump. He's about himself. Um, and so, no, he's not going to be able to piece that together. I think Trump's the nominee. Biden seems to be the guy running. And I think, you know, most people are going to be like, oh, my God, <laughs> I can't believe this is happening again. But I just don't see the vast majority of Americans voting for, for Trump and wanting to go to more violence, more insurrections, more that. I think the middle will, you know, not go for that. Well, you got to be in it to win it, right? And at the end of the day, if you have two candidates that are running, um, you know, the way you get elected is to be one of those two at some some core level. So it's it's too close to you know, too close for comfort in, in some, some fundamental way. But I, but I think I agree with that's, that. Yeah. that. That's what the choice would be. If it is does, does speak to something that's really, that's really broken in American, American politics. And so when, when you look out at the, the issues over the, over the next 10 years, China, it's going to be an enormous one economically, militarily, and it's something you've talked a lot about very directly and with with a lot of toughness um, coming out of the Democratic Party. Talk about China a little bit and how you see that relationship. And it's even deteriorated significantly since you left Congress four months ago. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do think that that China is the threat. We need to understand that from a from an economic and military perspective they have a number of weaknesses. And my criticism really is that we need to understand uh, those weaknesses that they have around energy and, and, and uh, imp importing and their lack of innovation in some areas. Um, they steal intellectual property to try to compensate for that. They really are gaming the system in a million different ways, but they have weaknesses that we can exploit. Um, but the problem is we don't have the kind of sophisticated enough industrial policy that we need. I think we're taking some steps in that direction, um, but we've got a lot more uh, to do. Um, but this is these are they're building islands in the South China Sea. They're they're spreading their reach into Africa. They're doing all they can to secure long term contracts for, you know, rare earth metals and all the rest coming into China and putting them in the middle of the technology space. But, you know, Steve, it's, it's complicated with, as we move to a clean energy future, um, with the resources, natural resources, minerals, and other rare earth metals that we're going to need. And we need to be very clear-eyed in how we approach this. Um, but China is the country that is coming after us uh, Ray Dalio has some really great stuff on this, on the collision of two superpowers uh, in, in our debt and our deficits and how that puts us in a position of weakness. Um, but, but China is, is the threat. And uh, the, the way we beat them is to have the strongest economy we possibly can here in the United States. And that means a strong middle class and then continuing to build up, uh, you know, the military in the sense that we've, we don't know what the threats are. And we need to be prepared for them. How do we how do we rebuild that American middle class 
And is it possible uh, to rebuild it at the advent of the age of artificial intelligence that an American family can have a decent living, potentially on one income, uh, where the parents have the ability to save for retirement, um, to get ahead in life, um, and to pay for their kids' education. Is that possible to do? I think if we invest, right, with 330 million people in a world of, you know, eight to soon to be nine plus billion, we're 330 plus million. And I just think there is a space for the United States to be the absolute most cutting edge advanced manufacturing uh, country in the entire world. We have natural gas, we have energy, we have great universities, great research. But what we've not done is reinvest back into the communities that got lost into the transition, all of that human potential. And so I think, you know, again, like I'm kind of in a, in a weird spot here. Like I think the government has a role to play in these things, but the problem is the government's broken. It doesn't know how to execute and provide services like it should at a modern economy uh, should like, you know, anybody who wants to interface with the government at any level, you know, whether it's the DMV or the federal government or trying to get a contract or go to the county. I mean, it's it's like nobody wants to do that because it's not a great experience. And we with all the technology, we need to be able to figure out how to administer these programs in a way that's effective and efficient that actually meet the goals of the program and not just keep throwing money if the goals aren't working. There's a lot of programs that are working that could use more money, but we're spending too much on the stuff that's not working. So how do you invest? Like, I just think about a place like Youngstown, Ohio, right? The, the land that time forgotten so many ways. Like we need to take down dilapidated homes. We need mental health treatment. I mean, I've been traveling a lot in the last two months and I know you travel a lot too, to, to go to Seattle and see tents along the highway of homeless, to go to LA and see this, San Francisco, anywhere you go, you're seeing homelessness. How in God's name have we not figured this out? This is insane that in America we have a homelessness problem. How do we have a mental health problem? You see so many people who end up in prison, $40,000 a year, they got a mental health issue, right? Or they're homeless and they got a mental health issue because we don't have an adequate mental health system in the United States. How do we fix that? Like, we want to talk about rebuilding the middle class. It starts with like Maslow's hierarchy of need. Like you can't have tra severe trauma. You can't have a mental health problem. You can't have, you know, you got to be healthy. Then you got to have a skill. Like, and you, you hate to say, oh, the government's got to save all this, or solve all these problems. Somebody's got to do something. And that's why I think this, this lack of conversation between what are the aspects of the free market like we talked about that can do really good things and jazz things up and solve a lot of really big problems. And what's the role of the government? And if the two aren't even talking to each other, you're not going to solve the mental health crisis. crisis. You're not going to solve deaths of despair. You're not going to bring social and emotional learning to schools. You're not going to have trauma-informed care in schools. You're not going to have good infrastructure. You're not going to have permitting reform. You're not going to have any of these things we need to rebuild the middle class. So there's all this stuff that we need to do before you even get to rebuilding the middle class. And it gets back to the original thing we talked about, community, right? You got to bring people together to care and love about each other, be concerned for each other, to enable to have conversations that lead to problem solving 
and lead to a better, more healed body politic. So it's it's all hands on deck, man. I think think one of the things that um, people would be interested to hear from you is what is it like to be in Congress and how many of your Republican colleagues away from the cameras, away from the lights, kind of look look to the right, look to the left, and are like, oh, this guy's nuts, <laughs> right? But, but, but then you watch them go along deeper and deeper and deeper all the way. You know, there's, there's the ones who um, at believe, they're true believers, Jim Jordan, right? He, he wants to do everything he can from his extremely privileged position that he holds as chair of a committee in the House of Representatives and the most powerful country in the world. That's an honor and a privilege. He's going to abuse that by doing everything he can to try to help Donald Trump. So you got those guys. Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to get on a plane and fly to New York City today <laughs> to be there for her guy. Uh, you got those people. And then you I would say that's about half. And then you have the other half who who do what do what you just suggested that they do. They do do that. They 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 look and they say this person's batshit crazy. Um, but I'm I'm the chair of a committee and I you know want to advance the cause of my district. And politics is a crazy business and we're in a crazy time. And I'm not going to stop this from happening. And because I'm in this position of power and authority in Congress, I can help my community. And I'm willing to bite my tongue. And that's probably the other half. I have a I have a I have a question for you um, that I honestly people could break in here right now, hold guns to my head and ask me this question. I would not be able to answer it. And <laughs> and I say this as someone who's played a leading role in two presidential campaigns, been in a been in a White House, governor's races, Senate races, started the Lincoln Project, all the, all the rest. If, if, if those guys broke in, put the gun to my head right now, and they said, what is no labels? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Do you know what it is? Uh, it's it's an aspiration of uh, almost nostalgia, you know, of a, of a, a better place for us to be. Um, it has, I don't think it has zero applicability to the present moment. Um, but it's an aspiration and, you know, I mean, I, I get it. I get people want to say, Hey, no labels do the right thing all the time. Um, but like in this reality, it's, it's scary to think that a, a no labels candidate could potentially put Trump back in office. I mean, that just, it's, it's mind boggling to me that like now's the time, like you want to run no label candidates for, for Congress. You want to run them for Senate. You want to run them for governor, city council, dog catcher, coroner have at it don't run it for president right now like that's we've got to put this thing to bed and and we can't do it but i think it's an aspiration of you know a a state of mind of something that's better than the insanity of today i think it's shocking that there's a group with 70 million dollars on hand that is defying Right. I think that is, you know, something that's obviously true is that everything has a label, literally everything. 
And that's that's a neutral thing. That's not a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing when you have a group like a no labels that says there's no material difference between an autocratic cult of personality and a, and a pro-democracy coalition, that the autocratic coalition stands equally with the pro-democracy coalition, and that what we need to do is to obliterate labels for the purposes of a comedy between two sides that I guess just floats in zero gravity of nothingness. Um, and, you know, I think that more than anything else, conviction, right, is, 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 a, is, a, is a powerful, powerful force that seems to be completely absent in American politics. And I know you are not one of those people who lacked for conviction. And so when you look at where we are right now in politics, you think about the, the three or four things that this country has to do in the next 10 years to secure the next 50. What, what, what are they? And, and what do you think that leaders need to go to the country with and talk straight to the American people about and say, we need to pay attention to this. We need to focus on this. We need to make the national decision to do what in order to save A, B, and C. How, how, how do you see that? Yeah, um, you know, again, I, I, I see everything through the lens of like persuasion. So how are we going? Like, there's a lot of important things. And I think there's probably four or five important, really important things that we need to do. But the question for leaders, and that's why conviction is so important, is to say, you know, I'm only going to I'm only going to follow somebody that I really believe in. And so that that is communicating something that's really important. This is why I keep getting back to an economic message, a rebuilding the middle class message that applies to 80% of the people. Because again, in, in the art of war, there's a, um, a orthodox, there's another concept, orthodox to the extraordinary. You got to meet people in the orthodox and then you lead them to the extraordinary, right? These are the highest, deepest principles of leadership. And so meeting people in their economic situation, when you know that half the kids in America, uh, more than half that go to public schools, live in poverty, you know, the, we know what the poverty rates are, we know what the wage stagnation's been, prescription drug costs, all of those kind of economic things. If the next leader or our leader who's gonna lead us to the promised land or the next phase of American greatness, you gotta meet people, uh, in that economic situation. So I think principle number one has got to be not, not some esoteric concept like democracy, not that it's not important and all, all the rest. And we know the threats. I was there on January 6th. I saw it firsthand. But the average person does not want to talk about redistricting reform. They don't want to talk about money in politics. Yeah, throw the, the, they're all crooks, whatever. Yeah, there's too much money, but whatever. And then you talk about my job, my wage, my pension my healthcare costs and my security, my neighborhood. If you don't meet them there, you're not taking them anywhere. So that's gotta be a number one, uh, rebuilding the American economy, rebuilding the middle class. I think you need to frame that in the, in the idea of a competition and I, the, the, the competition with China and others is great. That's another thing. How do we outcompete the rest of the world? And, and what do we have to do to come together around that, around energy, 
around infrastructure, around research and development, around skills. Those are the next two things. And then the issues of freedom and democracy. I think you have to come directly after that. And that means a, a series of reforms, things like, you know, ranked choice voting, jungle, jungle primaries, these kind of things, um, you know, universal registration for vote for voting. I do think we got to get money out of politics, like those, those things, like the, a whole age of reform. How do we use technology to reform the government? How do we reform healthcare, fix these broken systems? So usher in an age of reform, uh, I think, and those kind of things would, would fall in um, after that. But I think it's, again, not to beat a dead horse, but it's got to start with the economic stuff or no one's going to pay attention to anything else you're saying. And the great smokescreen, of course, that prevents the ability to move on to that debate is the culture war. Yeah. Well, the culture war wins when there's not a robust economic message. I, I always argue, like, if you if those folks that we mentioned throughout this conversation, like if those people felt like the Democrats cared about them and the Democrats had a strong economic message in response to NAFTA and put people in prison, you know, for screwing up the economy and, and causing people to lose their, lose their homes. They were tough. They were hard. And then the soft, uh, the hard put them in jail. Bankers who screwed the economy up, they're going to jail and I'm going to bust their rear ends. Um, but I'm also going to help rebuild these communities, the soft. Um, if, if, if Democrats did that, you know, the culture wars wouldn't mean shit because no one would care. They'd be like, Roosevelt, he gave me my job, right? He, he, he saved my farm, right? He, he, he built the economy so that it worked for me, right? They called, they called Roosevelt a socialist too, Steve, right? He was a communist, right? He was worried about, he was worried about Huey Long, right? Because it was like, they're moving towards socialism. And, and he won. Why did he win? He beat off the left and he beat off the right. I, I love, I mean, I could watch the Fallow speech a million times. There was the, the, you know, the deafness of his political skills, of course. But how was he able to do that? Because he was delivering results to average people. And when you ask my grandparents, you know, who were first generation Italian-American, my grandfather was a steel worker, who the greatest president ever was. FDR got us out of the depression, won the war, changed our lives, right? So we didn't do that. And so culture wars play more so now because we've screwed this up and, and they tried that stuff with Roosevelt and slid right off. Well, I, I know you have spent no small amount of time looking around committee rooms at some of your colleagues, wondering what it is exactly that they're doing there. <laughs> um, but how do you see the purpose of politics, of public service? You spent 20 years as a congressman. Um, did you leave cynical or did you leave more optimistic than the day you started or about the same? But at the at the big level, uh, the purpose, the purpose of public service should be what exactly? Well, I mean, it's, it's it. I mean, that's it's service. Um, you know, I, I went to Catholic school for 13 years um, and my wife teases me, Andrea teases me. She's like, you believed it, 
right? And it, it wasn't Catholic school of dogma and rules. It was Catholic schools of social gospel and service. When I was quarterback of the high school football team, our captains of the team and team, we had to put our jerseys on and we had to go out into the community for senior service. And we had to serve, like we had to go to nursing homes. We had to go to the other elementary schools and talk to the kids because we were leaders. So I've always felt like service is essential, you know, and it's, uh, I had an old, an old Catholic friend of mine who helped me when I first ran 20 some years ago. She'd say, don't call yourself a politician. You are a public servant. You are here to serve the public. You work for the public. And I believe that. And I think that's, that's the goal. And when you get to the point where it's about, I'm going to show up in New York to get the cameras to support the insurrectionists and get, get myself on TV, like that's not what it's about. And I, you know, there's a great, uh, and I, I know I sent it to you at one point called Virtual JFK. It was, it was, it was an alternative uh, kind of history of Kennedy, like what the world would have been like. Um, but it goes through what he did. And he took on, like he had this North Star, like how many times he could have brought the country to war and he didn't do it. West Berlin, Vietnam, you know, other uh, Cuba, where he said, no, maximum pressure by the Hawks to do it. And he just had this internal compass of, and it was service in a sense, but responsibility. And like, that's, that's the course that we need leaders to stay on. Teddy Roosevelt had it when he busted the, you know, uh, the, the monopolies and the trusts. I mean, it's like we, our history is, we have these examples. It's just, you know, not recent. <laughs> well, I know Tim Ryan, uh, there's a lot of people out there who would like to see you back in public life, in public service. Uh, a lot of them who joined us today, um, but we need to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you to everybody who took some time out of their evening tonight to be with Congressman Tim Ryan and I. Thank you very much. 